If any of it is false, then none of it can be trusted. Because we don't have the capacity to sort it out. We have it on the authority of our Lord Himself. He believed in its eternal authority, in its verbal and plenary inspiration, and in its complete inerrancy. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. How often are you immersed in the Word of God? Do you constantly submit your heart and mind to the authority of Scripture? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom is continuing his current series with part six of What Your View of Scripture Says About You. In reading the scripture, you discover that the thrust of Jesus' ministry was not primarily the miracles, it was his teaching the Word of God. In fact, when the people wanted more miracles, what did Jesus do? He went and taught the scriptures instead. He caused people to sit under the authority of the Word of God. And as you'll learn today, you're to sit under the same authority as well. The question is, have you submitted your life to his authority? Keep that in mind as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. He's not a real prophet. If he's wrong, how many times? Just once. God says, he doesn't speak for me. You hear what God is saying through Moses? The mark of a true prophet with a truly divine message is total truthfulness without a hint of error or falsehood. If there's any error, if there's any falsehood, then he doesn't speak for God. The rest of the Old Testament makes that same point. 2 Timothy 7.28, speaking of God, says, Now, O Lord, you are God, and your words are truth. When you speak, God, it's truth. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words. There's no impurity in them. There's no error. There's no deceit. They're perfectly pure. Why? They're like silver tried in a furnace on the earth, refined seven times. There's no impurities. There's nothing but the purest of truth. Look at Psalm 119, verse 160. The sum of your word is truth. In other words, all of it together is truth. There's no error in it. Together it's truth. But then he adds this. And every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. The sum of it's true. And every single one is true. There's no wiggle room there, folks. You come to the New Testament, the same message in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Paul is talking about making sure you're careful with the Word if you're called to teach it. And he tells Timothy, you need to be a diligent workman, accurately handling the Bible. But what does he call the Bible? The Word of Truth. That's what it is. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all the Scripture is the breath of God. It's breathed out by God. 
if it's breathed out by God, if every word, every letter, every stroke that distinguishes one letter from another is breathed out by God, then guess what, folks? There can be no what in it. No error. Because God never deceives and He never lies. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that He should lie. Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. So the Scripture claims to be the inspired, breathed out, inerrant Word of God. In everything it affirms. But we also see this from the statements of our Lord. Now, I'm going to come to Matthew 5, but let me give you a couple of others before we get there. You remember Matthew 4, the temptation? In the temptation, Satan comes and tempts Jesus in three different ways. We've studied that together, but how does Jesus respond to the temptation, to each of the three temptations? What does he do? He quotes... From the Old Testament, specifically, he quotes from Deuteronomy all three times. In context, Jesus responds to the temptation with the meaning of Scripture. But in one of those cases, the first, Matthew 4, verse 4, listen to what he quotes. He quotes from Deuteronomy, and he affirms what Moses wrote to be true. Listen to what Moses wrote, and our Lord quotes. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on what? Every, what? Word that comes out of the mouth of God. Every word of that book that you hold in your hand was breathed out of the mouth of God. And we are to rely on, depend on, find our strength and sustenance on that word more than even our necessary food. Turn over to John chapter 10. Remarkable statement Jesus makes. John chapter 10, verse 30. You remember this claim he makes to deity. I and the Father are one. We are completely equal. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jews got it. Verse 31, they picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus said, I've showed you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you stoning me? The Jews said, not for good works, but for blasphemy. And because you being a man make yourself out to be God. Now watch verse 34. Jesus answered them, has it not been written in your law? Now notice a couple things. First of all, he goes to the scripture. Secondly, he, he refers to the Old Testament as the law. He quotes from Psalm 82, but he calls it the law. And here's what he quotes from Psalm 82. I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? Now what's going on here? Jesus is quoting a psalm where the judges of Israel are called gods. Not in the sense of deity, but in the sense of the authority they've been given by God. And Jesus says, if it was okay for the psalmist to refer to the judges of Israel as gods, how much more appropriate is it for me, who is the Son of God, to be called that? But notice what he says 
as he's demonstrating all this. Go back to verse 35, the parentheses, very important parentheses. He says, he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Now, what's amazing about this text is Jesus is basing his argument on two Hebrew words. The word for judges and the word for gods. And he says, down to those very words, the scripture cannot be broken. The word he uses for broken here, same word he used back in verse 17 of Matthew 5, abolished. It can't be annulled. It can't be repealed. It can't be abolished. It can't be withstood. Down to its words, it's going to stand. John 17, 17, our Lord says in His high priestly prayer to the Father, Your word is truth. Now, Jesus affirmed all of that, but I want you to go back now to Matthew chapter 5. Let's look at what He says here. Matthew five eighteen. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law, watch this, until all is accomplished. Here Jesus says, it is easier for the universe as we know it to be completely destroyed than for the smallest Hebrew letter, even the smallest stroke added to a letter, to pass away until all is, notice what he says, the end of verse 18, is accomplished. Now that's a different Greek word than the word fulfilled in verse 17. This word literally means to happen or to come to pass. All is going to come to pass or to happen. Jesus is saying it's easier for the universe to be destroyed than for anything that's written in Scripture to fail to happen down to the smallest letter, down to the smallest stroke that distinguishes one letter from another. The whole universe could more easily disappear than for one of those things to fail to happen if God said it's going to happen. Jesus is here affirming the utter trustworthiness, truthfulness, and certainty of the Scripture. He is affirming its inerrancy because he's saying that of the letters and the strokes So the question is, when did Christians begin to doubt the inerrancy and infallibility of Scripture? It eventually came with the birth of liberalism, the birth of human reason sitting in judgment on the Scripture, and it has continued to come in waves since then. In fact, I would encourage you to read a book called The Battle for the Bible, written by Harold Lenzel. It was a book written back in the mid-70s. It describes how the battle over inerrancy was waged in the church at that time. At that time, a group of evangelical leaders created what was called the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. And they essentially answered all the questions about the, the inerrancy of Scripture. And for a period of time, no one with any voice was denying the inerrancy of Scripture. But tragically, the issue has risen again. And I believe over the next 10 to 20 years, this will be the biggest issue that will be fought in the church. They're even talking, by the way, of reviving the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. 
Just as an example, let me give you a local example. Recently, within the last year or so, a professor stood up in a seminary class in an evangelical seminary right here in our own city and told his evangelical students that if they were going to try to defend the traditional doctrine of inerrancy, as I've explained it to you, they should be prepared to be disappointed. And he responded to an email, followed up on that question, making it very clear of what his views were. He is the one who is out of step both with historic Christian thought and with the clear statements of our Lord. In fact, if that man had said that under a previous administration at that seminary, he would have been fired. But not in today's climate. Today there's a climate to just keep giving it up. Do you understand, as we sit here today, that evangelicals have largely given up Genesis 1 and 2, and a literal six-day creation. It is hard to find a Christian college, Christian college, that believes in a literal six-day creation. They've given up the store. And now, right now, the battle is raging over whether or not Adam was actually a real person, a historical person. This is being discussed in evangelical colleges and seminaries. Where does it end? You start on that slope, where do you stop? Who determines that if Adam wasn't a real person, that Jesus was raised from the dead? If any of it is false, then none of it can be trusted. Because we don't have the capacity to sort it out. And that's why God gave us a completely trustworthy Scripture in every detail you can have confidence in the Scriptures you hold. Jesus didn't have any of those questions. We have it on the authority of our Lord Himself. He believed in its eternal authority, in its verbal and plenary inspiration, and in its complete inerrancy. Now there's one final attribute of Scripture Jesus identifies in His comments here. It's careful preservation. Now, this is not absolutely promised here, but it's implied in what he says. Because notice Jesus isn't talking about the truth of the Scripture. He's talking about the letters and words of the Scripture. He's talking about the written Scripture. And he says, neither the smallest letter nor the smallest stroke shall pass away. He is implying that God had preserved his word and will preserve his word in written form. Remember, when Jesus was... Alive, they no longer had the original autographs. The actual scroll on which Moses wrote and on which the prophets wrote, they no longer had. All they had were copies that were ultimately made from those originals through generations. And yet, he consistently referred to those copies as the Scripture. In fact, the Bible from which Jesus most frequently quoted was the Septuagint, a Greek translation made from those Hebrew copies. In other words, Jesus was arguing that the Scripture has been preserved. He's implying that in what he says. So when we look at the thousands of manuscripts of the Old Testament and New Testament that have been preserved to our day, we can have confidence that in that body of manuscripts, the Scripture, as God gave it to us, has not been lost. You understand, I think, that our our English Bibles were translated from ancient Hebrew and Greek manuscripts 
For example, there are more than 5,000 surviving manuscripts of the New Testament. Compare that to the number of manuscripts that we have of other ancient documents. Remember now, 5,000 New Testament manuscripts. There are less than 20 each of most of the ancient Greek and Roman writers. It's also remarkable how close the events are to the writing. For example, you look at other ancient documents, you find that there's a large gap of time between when the events happen and the surviving manuscripts that we have. The earliest manuscripts we have of the classic Greek and Roman works were copied 700 to 1400 years after the originals were written. 700 to 1400 years after the originals. When you look at the New Testament, I have seen it. We have the Ryland's Papyrus, which is part of John's Gospel that dates to 25 years after it was written. And we have complete manuscripts of the New Testament that were copied only 150 years after the events they describe. It's incredible how it's been preserved. I had the chance when I was in Jerusalem to see the Isaiah scroll that was, that was discovered in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It was written, they tell us, between 100 and 200 years before Christ. Experts have compared the text of that scroll that was buried in a hillside 100 to 200 years before Christ or shortly thereafter, and it's been stuck away. They compared that to the Hebrew text on which your Bible in the Old Testament has been translated, and they discovered there was very little difference. For example, in chapter 1 of Isaiah, comparing the Isaiah scroll to the first chapter of Isaiah, the Hebrew text that your Bible was translated from, there were only 20 minor differences in spelling and things like that. Only one word was different, and it didn't affect the meaning of the text. The bottom line is this, folks. By every standard used with ancient documents, the evidence for the reliability of our Bible is overwhelming. If scholars didn't hate what the Bible said, they would never question its reliability and authenticity. That's part of the point Jesus is making in Matthew 5. You know, Jesus often challenged the Jews of his time about upsetting the meaning of Scripture, but he never once said to them, your text of Scripture is corrupted. You're using the wrong Bible. Instead, he quoted from both the Hebrew and Greek they used, and he called the content he quoted the Word of God. It's preserved remarkably. In fact, I love what Peter says in 1 Peter 1. He says, he quotes from Isaiah, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord, what? Endures forever. And then he says, and that was the word which is preached to you. That's what we're telling you. It's that very enduring word that God talked about. So those are the attributes Jesus believed to be true of the scripture. And if you're a follower of his, those are the attributes you must believe as well. Is he your teacher or is he not? If he's your teacher, then you will embrace the same view of Scripture that he himself embraced. How does that affect us? If like Jesus, you and I have a true high view of Scripture, we will treat the Scripture the way he did. Here's how he treated it. Number one, he read it and expected others to read it. 
Luke 24, 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He read all the scriptures. He knew all the scriptures. He explained them. Matthew 12, 10. He says to his enemies, have you not even read this scripture? Folks, if we're going to take Jesus' high view of scripture, we're going to read it as well. We're going to be in it as well. Number two, he memorized it and used it against temptation. In his temptation, three times he said, it is what? Written. And he quoted Deuteronomy. That's how we respond as well. He responded with the meaning of the text and not merely a mantra. Number three, he believed it could be understood and therefore he studied it and he rebuked others for not studying it and not understanding it. What that means, folks, is you need to work at understanding it. You need to study it. Listen to Luke 2, 46. You remember when he was 12 and was in the temple? His parents came back after three days and found him. What was he doing? Listen to this. He was in the midst of the teachers there in the temple, both listening to them and asking them questions. What was he doing? He was studying the Scriptures. He was trying to learn and understand as as he was growing in his knowledge, humanly speaking, what he needed to know about the Scriptures. And we do as well. We can understand the Scripture. Jesus says in John 17, 8, The words which you gave them I have given to them, talking to the Father. They received those words, they understood those words, and they believed those words. That's how we're to respond. Number four, He obeyed it. And He expected us to as well. John 15, 10, I have kept my Father's commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. John, or excuse me, Luke 8, you remember, they came to Jesus and said, your mother and brothers are outside. And he pointed to the followers around him and he said, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Listen, you're related to Jesus if you hear his word and you do it. And finally, he taught it as the focus of his ministry, and he demanded that people place themselves under his authority. Read Mark 1. You will discover that the thrust of Jesus' ministry was not primarily the miracles. It was teaching the Word of God. In fact, when they wanted more miracles, what did he do? He said, no, I've got to leave here, because I've got to go to other cities and teach and preach, because that is what I came to do. He caused people to sit under the authority of the Word of God. And we're to sit under that authority as well. It comes down to this, folks. What did Jesus say about himself in John 14, 6? As we looked at his view of Scripture, what did he say about himself? John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus says, everything I am... Everything I say, everything I do is absolutely objectively true and everything else is false. I am truth in a person, Jesus says. And in Matthew 5, Jesus tells us, I have absolute confidence in the scripture and so should you. Let's pray together.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part six of What Your View of Scripture Says About You. Join us next time for part seven as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. And Tom, it's popular today to deny the inerrancy of Scripture. How should believers respond to this trend? There are many different reasons that you and I can trust the Bible, not just what it says theologically, but what it says about issues related to history, archaeology, all of those sorts of things, because the Bible is the Word of God. As Paul puts it so clearly to Timothy, the the Scripture itself is the product of the breath of God in the same way that the words I'm speaking now are the product of my breath. And our Lord affirms the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture, even in the passage we're studying, down to the very smallest letter of the Hebrew language as well as the smallest stroke of a letter. And so Jesus could not, in a more definitive way, affirm the authority and inerrancy of Scripture than he does. And he insists that we who are his followers embrace the Scripture just as he did. Thanks, Tom. Church leadership can often seem like hazardous duty. Leaders can have both mountaintop experiences and seasons of discouragement. How can you, as a leader of Christ's church, faithfully respond to the different perspectives on leadership and the trials and triumphs of ministry? In Tom Pennington's book, Faithful Stewards, Tom identifies three key perspectives on church leadership that can help you maintain spiritual stability in ministry. Purchase your copy of Faithful Stewards today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. 